0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Great, good, awesome. My name is Josh, I'm one of the teaching pastors and lead pastors here at the District Church. It is a joy and honor to be with you guys this morning. Um, At this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss all of our three- to five-year-olds to the little district, where they will be able to worship and hear of the good news of Jesus. Um, And for those of us in here, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 22 through 27 this morning uh, we are finishing up on an intimate conversation between Jesus and his disciples in how he has asked them two questions of who do the crowds say that I am and who do you say that I am, a question we must ask and answer today as well. Um, But before we jump into this passage, let me give you a couple announcements, uh, two quick ones. Uh, For the ladies in here, as we announced last week, uh, women's breakfast will be on hold for June and July. Uh, Just like our ministries that we have going on, like our community groups, we have um, those on pause. And so this gives time for rest and um, relaxation, re- reflection, whatever it might be in regards to hosting and leading. Um, and so the same with our women's breakfast. We are going to have that on pause until the beginning of August. And so if you uh, receive our emails or if you're on the Facebook women's page, you'll be able to see Angela's update when it comes to August and where that will be. So be on the lookout for that. And then finally, June 22nd, uh, Thursday evening at 6.30, we will be having our second Nations Night that will be facilitated by the Parkers, and this will be at the Wrights House up in Carmel. Uh, we will be joined by Manuel Sanchez, who is a missionary and church planer that we support through the Summit Network. Uh, he is down in the Dominican Republic. Uh, he has actually preached for us a couple of years ago, and so we get the opportunity to hear all that God is doing down in his church, as well as how we can pray for him and support him. So. Uh, put that on your calendars June 22nd Thursday evening 6:30 at the Wrights house you'll be able to come and join us for our Nations Night as well as being able to pray for Manuel and all that God is doing um, and then finally all of this is on our email so if you do not receive those or maybe they're going to spam and we can try to figure out how to get them to your inbox come see me and we'll make sure that we'll get you on that list all right so Luke chapter 9 uh, starting in verse 22 through 27 before we jump into this passage though um, what i What I want to do, kind of set this up is uh, kind of give some context uh, to what this conversation that we 've already seen is bringing about right Last week, we looked at that question of who do you say that I am, and Jesus telling the disciples why he came, and really kind of breaking their expectation of who this messiah is right and oftentimes in our life we, we have those realities of expectation versus what our experience truly is. Anybody ever do a deep dive on Instagram or TikTok of like expectations versus realities? Anybody? Yeah, right, yeah. Anybody experience those, right? Anytime I go out to the golf course, that is my reality. I have an expectation of what it's supposed to look like, and then I get done, and it's not so great. But one of the most disappointing realities of my life actually happened in the last couple of months, Now, most of you know, or some of you may remember, I used to have a pit bull. His name was Aslan. He was a large 80-pound pit bull, and as you can see, he he loved kids. He was a gentle giant, um, and he passed away last year at 10 years old. Uh, He was a dog that I brought everywhere, obviously to softball games, as well as walking on the Monon, things like that. I loved him, and when he passed away, I knew I'd eventually want another dog right? And so I knew that it's going to take me some time to get over him, but eventually I would get another pit bull, most likely a puppy, so that I could train him to be just like Aslan was. So after about seven months of being dog-free, I decided it's time to go get another dog. So I go down to the Humane Society. My friend's working there. She says, hey, we've got this pit bull puppy for you, and you should come down, check him out, and take him home. So I did. Most of you know, this is Franklin. He now runs around my house. Um, And A few months begin to pass as I have Franklin in the home, and I begin to see he's not growing. So either he's sick or something's wrong, right? So I started to feed him a little bit more. That didn't help. All it did was make him chubbier to where he looked like a land seal. He wasn't getting any bigger. He wasn't looking like Aslan. He actually wasn't acting like Aslan. Wasn't docile. He has an attitude. Yeah. So finally what I decided was I need to figure out what type of dog he is because he looks like a pit bull in his face. He has this broad chest, maybe a little bit of little man syndrome, but he does not look as if Aslan did at the same time. So I finally got a DNA test for him. And after a couple of weeks, this DNA came back and yes, he had pit bull in him, but the same percentage of pit bull he also had as chihuahua. So he is a pit bull and a chihuahua, which explains a whole mess of interesting things about him. His attitude, his size, all of these things. So what I thought I was getting, which will come up here, this is what I thought I was getting, right? But this is what I got. A small, 35-pound, somewhat-looking pitbull bull slash chihuahua who has an attitude, who doesn't listen, who tears everything up. This is my reality. You see, I had an expectation of what Franklin was supposed to be. I thought he was going to be this 75, 80 pound pit bull that would be docile, a gentle giant that I'd be able to train just like Aslan. But the reality of my life, especially when this DNA test showed me what kind of dog he was, I saw this is what I have. Now, I love him. He's quite funny. He has an attitude. And I enjoy him most of the time in my home. But this is my reality with Franklin. But let me ask you a question this morning. When it comes to your plans in life, How many of you have similar experiences of expectation versus reality? How many of you have thought I would have kids, I'd have a husband or a wife, I'd have a bank account, I'd have financial security, I might have all these things by the time I'm this age, and yet you sit here today and none of that is your reality. Or maybe you have all of those things and what you thought was supposed to bring you life and joy in them is not because your reality is the things that God has given you, but maybe you thought they were going to satisfy you. Your expectation and your reality are different. And jumping back into this intimate conversation with Jesus that he's having with his disciples, we see that they are experiencing the same thing. You see, their expectation of what a Messiah was supposed to look like And the reality that Jesus is about to give them are two different things. But what I want us to see this morning is that God's plans often differ from our expectations. But his plans are far greater than we could ever imagine. I'll say that again because it is wordy. God's plans often differ from our expectations. But his plans are far greater than we could ever imagine. And I want us to see this in three different ways through his cross, through the disciples' cross, and then what we gain from the cross. So let's jump into what Luke has to say at the end of this conversation and see how Jesus calls us to follow him. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Let us go to him in prayer and ask him to bring light to our passage this morning. Lord, you are good to us. You are generous and gracious and merciful. And you not only have unique plans for each and every one of our lives, but we can rest in those plans because we know your character and your mercy And your goodness and your word reminds us that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts so even when our expectations for this life are different from the reality of what we experience we know that you are working all things out for your glory and our good whether those seasons are valleys of low our mountaintop highs, we can trust you. And as we see this morning, you have an expectation for the way in which your people are to live. So Lord, help us to be obedient to it, even when it's costly to us. Give light, O Lord, to our text this morning. Help us have the ears to hear and wisdom to receive your word so that we may trust you as king and that we may grow in maturity and love for you. As your servant this morning, use me as a mouthpiece and let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It is in you that I trust. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So picking back up from last week, Jesus is asking the disciples who the crowd says he is. Right, and we learned from last week, the crowds were often people who followed Jesus for his healing, his feeding, or his physical ministries, and they were people uncommitted to him being the Lord and Savior and Messiah. But then he turns the question to his disciples and to us, who do you say that I am? A question that the disciples get right, and one that we need to get right. Because our very souls depend on it. But Peter responds, You are the Christ of God, the Messiah. Come to set your people free. And yet their expectation of what a Messiah was supposed to do was not the same as Jesus ultimately then gives to them of why he came. You see, for them, the Messiah meant freedom. But freedom from oppression, freedom from the power and rule and reign of Rome. It meant that Israel would be back as leading in the land. And maybe even the disciples, because Jesus called them, would be put in charge of things. We see this in a conversation between James and John in Mark 10, where they asked to sit at Jesus' right and left hand to help rule his kingdom. Now, while they were right in their confession through Peter that Jesus is the Christ of God, their expectations were far from Jesus' reality of why he came. You see, Jesus came to bring freedom, but spiritual freedom, through his death and resurrection. Look back at Jesus' reality of, of why, he, his life, why he came to bring his life as a sacrifice for many. He says in verse 21 and 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, And be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now imagine if you're the disciples in this moment, right? They're rejoicing that they are in front of the Messiah. They got this question right that God supernaturally has revealed to them who Jesus is, the one who came to save his people. But instead of allowing them to rejoice, instead of allowing them to live in what they're thinking and their expectations, Jesus immediately gives them. The reason why he came and, and really probably crushes them, disorients them, throws them into confusion because the next thing he says is, Yes, you are right, but I came to die. Imagine their expectations dashed. The Son of Man, the Messiah, the deliverer for all of Israel, who they had been longing for to set them free, is finally here, but he's not here to set them free the way they expected. And many people today have a similar expectation for Jesus. Even in our church, people believe that he is just something or someone they can come and get things from, or someone that they just have to have knowledge of in order to receive eternal life. Some even think that he's just a moral or good teacher, that if all they do is follow his teachings, they will be fine. Some even see them just as their homeboy, right? who just has him as a friend, who's never going to call them out on their sin or call them to repentance or call them to live in obedience to him. This world has an expectation for who Jesus is. And it is far from the reality of how scripture defines him to be. C.S. Lewis says this far better than me in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. As some would summarize this, he is either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. And this is the reality of Jesus being the Messiah who came to deliver his people. He did come to bring freedom, but freedom from the oppression of sin and our bondage to it. Through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the grave. And it's only through Christ's work on the cross and resurrection from the grave that we can be saved. By putting our faith and trust in him and being obedient to all that he calls You see, God's plan often differs from our expectations, but his plans are far greater than we could ever imagine. You see, the disciples had an expectation of what the Messiah was supposed to look like. And Jesus shatters that by telling them why he came. But the reason he came is far greater than they could ever have imagined. Because he brought what they truly needed. And he has brought what we truly needed. Forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to the Father. Restoring our relationship back to him. That, brothers and sisters, is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it should cause us to rejoice like Paul does in Romans 11 when he says... Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom of of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might need? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The disciples' expectation was that the Messiah would free them but the reality is that Jesus does free, but he gives us spiritual freedom from sin that we all need. But with the disciples' expectation also comes how to follow him. And these expectations of following him don't stop at the cross, this is where they begin. While all that Jesus offers in salvation is a free gift, I want you to hear this this morning it's also costly. It requires death. First, the death of Jesus Christ in order for our sins to be covered, in order for his righteousness to be imputed to us. But it also requires our death. Now, for most of us in here, it may not require a physical death. There are some of brothers and sisters throughout the world who have experienced and will experience this. But for most of us, this isn't a physical death that Jesus calls us to. But it is a death of our lives daily, our desires that we have. Look at verse 23 and what Jesus says is required of us as we take up our cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. As if Jesus hadn't already begun to shatter the disciples' expectations of what it would look like to follow the Messiah, he goes even further by telling them an egregious and heinous thing. Connected to discipleship to him. And what it costs to follow him. Jesus' reality here is that you must die to self. Deny your desires and follow him. Through surrender, through sacrifice, and through suffering. Because Jesus surrendered, sacrificed, and suffered on our, ha- on our behalf. Phil Rikin says the only way to follow Jesus is to follow him to the very death. And this has to come every day for the disciple of Jesus Christ. And this cross, this death starts with denial. It is a surrender of self, a denial of self. We must surrender our desires daily in order to follow him. Denial here is to forget oneself entirely. It is to reject any thought of doing our will that does not please God. This is especially true of our old sinful fleshly self. As believers, we have a new creation. We have put on a new flesh. We have been given righteousness that is not our own. And Jesus has taken on our unrighteousness. So it is our job to daily follow him. Daily put to death those sinful desires. We are called to deny our old selves, to put on death of our old sins and ways in which we used to live in order to live according to God's standards and God's holiness that he calls us to. And guys, this right here is going to be extremely hard in our day and age. I'm sure that it was also hard for the disciples. But when you look at our day and age, when you look at our world around us, This is not what we are called to. This is not the expectation that we often hear when it comes to choices and desires in our own life. Am I right? Often, this world tells us that we need to live completely opposite of denial. In order to be happy, we must indulge ourselves. We must gratify whatever longing or feeling or desire that we have. Or as Parks and Rec tells us, we must treat ourselves. We see this so much in our world today from the partying, drinking, overindulgence, the sexual revolution and how the world tells us it's okay to sleep with whoever you want, man or woman, going completely against God's desire and design for marriage and the sanctity of it. I mean, look around you. I'm not trying to shoehorn a specific topic, but we are in June. We are amongst the pride, right? And what does pride tell us? To not deny ourselves, To actually indulge ourselves. This is what the world would tell us. This is what the world would expect of us. But Jesus says, if you are my disciple, you are to deny yourself and follow me. All that I've commanded, all that I've called you to, take up your cross and follow me. Now, not to make this just an us against the world type of mentality that churches will often do. There are desires that we in the church must deny as well that we have allowed into our gathering. One of the constant desires that I see in church hours and church around is the desire to forsake the gathering of the saints for consistent periods of time, right? Hebrews 11 tells us do not neglect the gathering of the saints. It is a command of believers to come and gather together and yet when the weather's nice, when a holiday comes, when whatever we, desire, whatever we desire leads us to choose not coming to Sunday morning and worshiping with the saints, we do it. We do not deny ourselves. We give in to our flesh. Now, I want to be honest. I, I do recognize that there are providential hindrances that take us away from gathering with the saints, whether it is work or sickness. But more often than not, there are times where we do not deny ourselves and we give in to our desires in order to not come to the gathering with the saints. And Jesus tells us, deny yourself. This is important to be with the saints, to hear God's word, to take communion, to worship with one another for what God has done for us. It is unique. It's far greater than anything else that you can go to or gather with other people in. And God has designed that for our good and the growing in sanctification. So we need to deny ourselves more often than we do when it comes to the gathering of the saints. But there's other desires that we need to deny. A lot of times when we talk about rest, our rest looks more like laziness than it does biblical Sabbath. So maybe instead of watching Netflix for four hours on your day off, read about God's goodness and mercy and grace to you. Or get out in nature and worship and see all that God has provided for you as his children. There are other desires as well. I would call them legitimate desires. They often can be very subtle. But there are things that are legitimate that we desire that aren't inherently wrong or sinful. But we do need to deny them for certain seasons or even for our own lives or the rest of our lives in order to continue to follow Jesus. I don't know what that might be for you, but there are freedoms and liberties that we have as believers. That in order to faithfully follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves these things. Because this is what Jesus calls us to do as his disciples. Now, Jesus takes the denial of self and and brings it to another level in this next command. It's similar to this call of denial, but it is more weighty. And it is to take up your cross daily. This is the sacrifice that we are called to obey as disciples of Jesus Christ. What's interesting here is that Luke's first use of the word cross comes in connection with following Jesus, the way a disciple would live. I'm I'm sure that you've heard this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Today, crosses are more of artwork, right? Or or maybe they're more of jewelry that we wear, And, and it's not wrong or sinful, but that's not The case for the disciples upon hearing this for the first time in the Roman world. You see, a cross was a symbol of death. And no doubt the disciples would have seen criminals who had taken their crosses to their own crucifixion. As Leon Morris puts it, When a man from one of their villages would take up their cross and go off with a band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey where he would not return. Most often today when we hear, or maybe you've even used this phrase, this is my cross to bear, it's often used in the form of our struggles or our sinful tendencies in our lives. It could be our tempers, it could be our anxiety, it could be our worry, whatever it might be in your life. Maybe you've used this phrase, this is my cross to bear. But the reality is those things actually need to be taken to the cross, laid at the feet of the cross and given over to the Lord so that He can help you deny them. And we have to recognize that the hardships and struggles in our life are not our crosses to bear, but they are a work of the Lord to sanctify us for his good purpose and ultimately our joy. You see, taking up one's cross is the most extreme form of self-denial, specifically when it comes to suffering for the sake of Christ. Joni Erickson todd explains this so well. And for for those of you who don't know who she is, at 17 years old, she was injured from a diving accident that left her paraplegic and in a wheelchair. She said this in one of her teachings at Wheaton College. She said, I've learned that it's a passion for God that will give you a passion for people. And this utter delight in him will come from the toughest of trials that you are about to face. Our affliction becomes that which pushes and shoves us down the road to the cross. And that's what it means to become like him in his death. Don't think that the cross is simply the wheelchair or an irritating job or an irksome mother-in-law. The cross is the place where you die to sin and live to God. The cross is a place where you die to sin and live to God. This is Jesus' expectations for his disciples that we would die to self, that we would take up our cross, that we would deny sin and follow him. And this isn't a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It, it isn't the, the the form of justification where when we accept and trust in Jesus in faith that we are set free and we are made righteous, no, this is our sanctification. This is the daily walk in which we deny ourselves, in which we take up our cross, in which we live for his sake in obedience and service to him. Guys, he willingly took up his cross for our sake. So how could we be content with doing anything less than picking up ours and living for him? Finally, the last verb that Jesus gives his disciples is surrender or follow me. Following him. This is the most basic definition of a disciple, is it not? That we follow Jesus. But we follow him even to his death. And all of this cannot come from our own strength. This must, must come from a supernatural strength outside of ourselves. You see, last week we saw that Peter made the confession that Christ is God. He is the Messiah. He is the deliverer. And we see in the, the parallel passage in Matthew that Peter came to this revelation through supernatural natural revelation from the Father. That it was from the Father that Peter and the disciples were able to recognize who Jesus truly was. And this is the same for us. It's supernatural revelation that leads us to know truly who Jesus is and that he is the Christ. But it's also through supernatural strength. By the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live for Jesus. That we can be obedient to his call to be disciples and to follow him and to deny ourselves and to bear our cross daily. Guys, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives in us. So we have the power to fight temptation, to deny ourselves, to bear our cross because the Holy Spirit lives with, uh, within us if we are sons and daughters of God. God's plan often differs from our expectations, but His plans are far greater than we could ever imagine. And if we're honest, oftentimes when it comes to following Jesus, what we are called to today isn't really always our expectation, right? Right? Maybe it's not even how the world would define what following Jesus looks like, but we have to look at Jesus' words and take them seriously. And when we follow Him, and when we deny ourselves, and when we take up our cross daily, here's the promise we gain freedom. Not only do we have freedom spiritually, but also freedom in this world. Freedom from trying to find satisfaction in anything else in this life. Freedom from trying to work as hard as we can to gain everything in this world. Because as Jesus will go on to show us, when you gain everything in this world, you actually lose it all. Look what he says. For whoever would save his own life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is the great paradox of the Christian life. To lose your life for Jesus' sake, you will save it. But to try and save it yourself, you will lose it. To save your life in this manner that Jesus explains describes self-preservation. It's trying to find security and saving through your works and through your means that actually can't save you. And this is the warning Jesus is trying to give. Think of the rich young ruler. When he asks what he must do to follow Jesus, Jesus' response is, leave everything you have and follow me. And that ruler goes away saddened because his treasures were his idol. These are the same people who Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount that Luke gives in chapter 6 where Jesus gives woes to these men and women who seek to save themselves, to self-preserve, who seek satisfaction and security in this life and not in the life to come. Their expectation is their pursuits in the here and now will save them and not in the investments of the kingdom of God, which are eternal. And Jesus says, they won't if you pursue it If you do not deny yourself, if you do not bear your cross daily, if you do not follow me, and you try to save and preserve yourself, you will lose your life. And it's not just an eternal reality, which is what Jesus is talking about. How often do we see people seek to save themselves through security and peace and whatever means possible, and yet they seem unsatisfied? It's like drinking salt water, right? You think that you're going to to not be thirsty, but in the end, it makes you even more thirsty. You are not satisfied in seeking the things of this world. You will not be. As Jim Elliott once says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To lose... It all, for Jesus' sake, while it may feel like death now, will in fact bring salvation, will in fact save you. And this is our hope. Because Jesus said to his disciples, the reason he came is what? To die, but also to resurrect I said this last week and I'll say it again. I love the certainty that Jesus gives that not only is he going to the cross to die, but he is also telling his disciples and us he will resurrect. He will defeat sin and death. And we know as his disciples in this reality of his resurrection that this is not our end. This world, this life does not end here. But losing our life here For the sake of Jesus will bring that greater peace, that greater joy, that everlasting life that he promises. And he goes on to say, from this paradox, there's a great tragedy of the one who doesn't listen. And the one who seeks to save his life. Listen to what he says. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his life or himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus wanted his disciples and us to know the reality of trying to self-preserve or save yourself here on earth will cost you everything. So he asks this rhetorical question and gives this grand example of a man who seemingly saved his life here on earth but what does he lose? Everything. He loses his soul. It should make you think back to one of the temptations Jesus has given, right? I believe it's the third one where Jesus is brought to the edge of the earth and Satan says, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you everything. Here, Jesus is showing, if you do that, you will lose it all. This is the tragedy in trying to preserve and save yourself. In trying to gain everything that this world has to offer. And the reality is, Scripture actually gives us an example of someone who did this. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, in all his wisdom, gains the whole world. And Second Kings actually tells us he loses his soul. So we have this played out. There's nothing new under the sun. And Jesus is trying to warn us again that if you seek to preserve and save your life here, you will lose it. Guys, consider everything this world has to offer. Riches, luxury, entertainment, achievements. That's a a grand picture of what this world has to offer. Consider your own treasures that you seek to find. Whether it's financial security, pleasures you feel that you can't live without, the achievements that you might be striving for, you realize that none of these things will save you. Now, none of them have to be wrong or sinful, but when they are placed above God as the good gift giver, then they become idols. Then you realize that they are not satisfying. Then you realize that you will lose everything if you worship them to their end. This is the reality of seeking pleasure in this world and pouring all that you have into the here and now and not into eternity. And this is what Jesus is ultimately getting after. We are eternal beings. Despite what this world has to tell you, that this life is short and then when you die, you go into nothingness or you're annihilated or whatever it might be. Scriptures show us that we are eternal beings. And there is an end for us all. In eternity. And it's either heaven or hell. And the one who is focused on gaining life here will never deny himself He'll never take up his cross daily. He will never truly follow Jesus. And ultimately, that will lead him or her to be, uh, be ashamed of Jesus. Because their loyalty is tied to the things of this world. How many of us have seen this? How many of us have seen believers or people who claim to follow Christ only claim Jesus with their lips? But when the winds of culture change... So do they. They typically question the authority of God. They question the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Jesus becomes more of an activist than a Savior who they need to follow and obey. They are, as Paul describes in Ephesians 4, those who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by cunningness and craftiness in man's deceitful schemes. Those who seek to gain their life here, their expectation of discipleship through Jesus is based more on feeling and emotion and not through the lens of Scripture and how Jesus calls us to live and follow him. And one day, Jesus will come back to judge this world. This is what he's telling us. As eternal beings, there is a day when Jesus comes and he will judge This phrase, that Jesus will come in glory, shows us this. This is what this phrase points us to. That Jesus will come back to judge this world. And those who have denied themselves, who have taken up their cross daily and have followed him, he will welcome them with joy into heaven. But those who have sought to self-preserve, those who have sought to gain their life here, who are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of before the Father, and they will be condemned to the fires of hell. This is the reality of someone who does not deny themselves, who does not bear the cross of Jesus Christ and follow him. Now, Jesus then closes this conversation with an interesting and unique statement to his disciples that we will unpack next week. So for the sake of time, I just want to read this, passage, or read this verse, and then we'll close out. Jesus tells the disciples, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, he's talking to his disciples, but he's talking to some specifically that we will see next week in the Mount of Transfiguration. So you have to come back to figure out who Jesus is talking to, And we'll also get to see the final conclusion or the answer from God the Father of who Jesus is that Luke has been asking us since chapter 8. But to close this morning, I want to ask us a question that we must ask ourselves, and hopefully we have been asking ourselves in light of today's passage. Will we truly follow Jesus? Will we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and faithfully be obedient to his call of discipleship. Knowing that this call is not salvific. This is not our salvation being earned. Our salvation being earned it was through Christ on the cross. And his righteousness being given to us. For those who believe in faith. But this is obedience. The overflow of what it means To trust and believe and follow Jesus. So, Jesus last week asking the question, Who do you say that I am? is not just something that we verbally say, but it is also a life we live. And remember, God's plans often differ from our expectations, but those plans are far greater than we could have ever imagined. As we submit our lives to Jesus and present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship not being conformed by the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds, there we find freedom and joy and satisfaction in this life and hope for the life to come when Jesus returns or calls us home. So even though God's plans may look different than how we would have planned things out, we can trust that God's plans are greater for us than we would have planned for ourselves and we can seek to deny ourselves to bear our cross and to faithfully follow him believer brothers and sisters this morning will you obey and if you're an unbeliever in here you have not placed your faith and hope in Christ the author of fo- or the offer of following him in faith is offered to you this morning by denying yourself and seeking the pleasures of this world, you will not find true life. It is only found by putting your faith in Jesus as Lord that your sins will be forgiven and that righteousness will be added unto you. And I promise you, I promise you that this pursuit of Jesus, trusting him, In faith, this will be greater than anything you could ever gain in this world and in the life to come. So as we close with communion, I want to be reminded of the one who gave us the great example, the greatest example of denying himself, and that is Jesus Christ, who, as Philippians 2 tells us, put on flesh. And though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Every week when we take communion, we are reminded of this humility and self-denial of Jesus who stepped out of heaven and put on flesh, live a perfect life, die a sinner's death we so rightly deserve, and rose from the grave defeating sin and death on our behalf sealing our election as sons and daughters of God. And we can now rejoice. So every time we come to this table, we remember and reflect on what Jesus has done for us. It is a reminder of this sacrifice and the suffering that Jesus went through. But it also points us to a future reality, a reality where all the saints, when Jesus returns or calls us home, A reality where we will be celebrating at the wedding feast of the Lamb. This bread and this juice is just a shadow of what is to come. It's supposed to make you hungry for the eternal life and that feast that we will partake in. So I'm going to invite you to the table. And I'm going to give us some expectations of what it means to take communion. And then we will continue to worship the Lord through songs.